Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 19, our review of last week's ICER public comment session on their assessment of the beta-colic acid and resmeteron. Plus, from the vault, conversation 36.5 from season three. Last July's wrap-up of our conversation about Intercept Pharmaceutical and their release of updated regenerate data on beta-colic acid. This conversation starts with Mike Patel and Tony Villiotti discussing the statements they plan to make at the May 19th FDA Advisory Committee on beta-colic acid and goes on to my question about the one most important thing each panelist would like ISO to learn before their next NASH drug analysis. Answers are at the same time consistent with the earlier conversation and somehow deeper and broader in scope. You'll have to listen to hear why I say that. In our first conversation on the ISO preliminary report, GLI Vice President of Liver Health Programs Jeff McIntyre said he appreciated patients having a voice, but noted that that's not the same thing as having a vote. Patient advocates' comments in this conversation make it clear exactly how wide the gap between the two is right now. Fortunately, as Veronica Miller noted during our first ICER report episode, ICER reporting has no impact on FDA decisions. But, as we discussed during this conversation, it might have an impact on payers. Progress is a long journey, so let's all keep pushing. And while you do, listen, sit back, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion in our LinkedIn discussion group. To me, the best news about all this, by the way, is that it will have no impact on the FDA. The, the, the ISO documents are not something FDA takes into consideration. Louise Campbell. And I think that's a benefit. If this affects the FDA, then I'd be really concerned, given... That was that was what that was my point. We agree. It's, it's just not a well-done analysis. I mean, FDA will be interesting. Wayne Eskridge. But it is being used by the payers to have pushback about what they'll pay for and what they won't and who they deny. And I think that's a bigger concern. I agree. It won't affect FDA, but it certainly will enter into the discussions about price, about who pays and how much and who gets covered and who doesn't. Mike Bottel. On May 19th, I think, are the three of us also participating in the FDA meeting as well? Wayne and Tony? Uh, I haven't been invited. Yes, I am. Tony Villiotti. The whole family is participating. So, so Gina was able to get this one on her calendar, and she sent me a note saying that she wasn't able to get uh, ICER on her calendar. So you and Betsy went. She will be talking at the FDA hearing. And Mike, will you? Yes, but we only have three minutes on the next one. <laughs> so we have to be briefer. <laughs> Does this experience affect at all what either of you would say in that setting? Yeah, I, I'm actually talking about something different, although I guess some of it is it was you know mentioned at the ICER one, too, that from my perspective, I know Wayne and Tony don't know yet because we didn't have a discussion about it yet, but I believe that the decision to be treated, regardless of side effects, unless they're deadly side effects, if the adverse events are tolerable, then it's up to the patient and the physician to work together to decide if that medication is good for the patient. I don't think the FDA has to make a decision on approval based on the adverse events. Again, unless they're, you know, they're, they're life-threatening. That's interesting. Okay. Tony? Yeah, my comments at FDA will be actually completely different than my comments to ICER because I won't be talking about economics. What I'll be focused on, actually a little similar to Mike, is that right now people, you know, this isn't a laboratory experiment. People aren't putting their disease on pause while we take time to study these drugs. There are people who are sitting there seeing their disease advance and, you know, some people are dying. Some people are getting transplants and they need a solution now. And it doesn't need to be a perfect solution. If it's a solution that helps people either stop progression or just avoid a transplant, that's a good thing. And that you know, the side effects are, you know, are something each patient with their doctor needs to evaluate. You know, people get itchy even without these drugs. 
when they have liver disease. So probably focus more on that that kind of thing. Antonia, and the cardiovascular side effects can, from what I understand, be managed with other medications anyway, right? So my sense, Mike, was that once you take the patient cohort out, the LDL issue tends to go away, either because it's taking statins or because it just resolves. It's a longer term, yeah, I read that. You know, that was, that was a question in 2019, but now they've been following patients three years longer, and that just doesn't emerge as, as any kind of issue. That's interesting. First of all, I couldn't agree with you more. You sounded surprised, so that's why I was wondering. I, no, I actually, so 12 years ago, right, when I had my second round of adjuvant melanoma, they gave me two doses of Yervoy, and the itching with Yervoy was about as bad as anything I can imagine, paritis being for this drug, uh, all over my body, fairly relentless, and I was willing to keep going. Eventually, my adrenal system took a hit, and my blood pressure dropped to 80 over 60, and I was falling asleep standing up, and I said, I can't do that. But but the itching, I was willing to tolerate. That's why I said that's interesting. Now, if you think this is a non-progressive disease, the answer is we're very afraid of cancer, right? But we should be equally afraid of this, going back to progressive, non-progressive. Has the agency ever, t- I, ignorance, has the agency ever taken a position on that issue, progressive, non-progressive disease? Have they ever had to? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So, closing round. Let's assume that ICER, as an entity, were capable of learning from this experience and the feedback they got from you guys. What one thing would each of you like them most to learn or think about differently next time? Brave one, go first. I'd be happy to go first. One of the things that jumped out at me and hopefully they will learn from is that of the people voting, I think only one of them was a person who dealt with patients that have liver disease. I think when we're evaluating a drug like this, you really need to have more people involved who understand the patient's point of view and have actually dealt with the disease in their practice. I think a lot of what kind of came through to me was that these people were, a lot of the, most, almost all the voters, were dealing with it in the abstract and not in, in the real world. Hopefully that they can learn from that. One of the things that I think it needs to be more real world, and uh, we didn't particularly talk about this, but they evaluated these drugs as though they're lifetime. You know, you're going to take these for a lifetime. And I think that that's not a realistic way to approach an analysis. Uh, you're, you're really not going to do that. You're going to evaluate it at some point and, and you're going to make decisions down the road. So I think it, it's appropriate to have some extended period, perhaps, but I don't think lifetime makes a lot of sense on these analyses. I don't know if this would make a difference or not. And I was listening uh, carefully what Tony was saying, too, that we knew who was going to be in that panel beforehand. I wonder if spending a little bit of time getting to know or researching who the different people on the panel were and sort of rereading through that lens what we were saying to them to see if that would hit home or not. You know, we would normally do that if we were having an important meeting. And I'm thinking, I didn't really think about the audience. I generalized the group and just, oh, it, it's, you know, Midwest CPAC from and, and ICER. But really, they're individuals. And maybe we, if you look at, you could have had different messages almost in the same five minutes that we had, just a thought. It's a really interesting thought tactically. It doesn't completely answer the question of what we'd like to see ICER do differently, unless it's put out much more information on who the members are before the meeting. But I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting question. You're right. We, we are talking to audience. Tony's point is audience should be more sensitive. Your point is, however sensitive the audience is, figure out where they live and hit them there. Yeah, I would go with that. I think if I was wanting ISA to alter anything, it would be where they look at being supportive of empathetic. And empathy can be split into different areas. They don't have to. They, they've got a process that has to be relatively black and white, and I can understand that. What I got a sense of is they at least need a cognitive empathy where they understand that other people have a different perspective to their own and take that into account. They don't have 
to deliver a totally empathetic response, but they do have to understand the perspectives that each of the individuals who suffer from the disease come with, and that can be so heterogeneous. So I'd just like them to spend a little bit more time understanding that perspective, because I think it's where we started the conversation about the lack of empathy that was felt by the patient groups. It's really important if you can't engage the population and the community you're aiming to be treating or advising treatment within, then it's really, really difficult to get any traction and a fundamental respect for that process. And I haven't got a sense of full respect for their process, which is a shame if you want to do something. So I think because Tony and I tend to be at least semi-proud of being data geeky, I'm going to give a very data geeky answer. Bad data produces bad results. And so much knowledge has been gained in this field in the last three or four years that to use papers and insights that were four or five years old, which is what people tend to do because they've quote unquote stood the test of time. That's fine. But if, in fact, standing the test of time means you're the only thing that stood up in a hurricane, and hurricanes things are supposed to blow over. And we know so much more than we knew then. And the numbers have moved. And the insights have moved. And nobody says non-progressive anymore. And virtually nobody says a quarter of the population anymore. So when I said I said this the last time we recorded it, when, when those are the first two things you see, you immediately go, the data inputs are not going to produce the right result because they're not the right data inputs. And in both those numbers speak to far less urgency to get it right right now and to do the incrementally bold thing now as compared to wait for a perfect result, right? If it's, it's the less of a population has a disease, the less progressive it is, the less symptomatic it is, the less I have to worry about being urgent today. So all the data the last four years has suggested the need for far greater urgency. And with urgency, by the way, comes empathy. And the use of non-urgent old data, I think, was a real mistake. I would advocate in situations like this that people have different processes for deciding what data they're going to use to build their models. And that instead of erring on the side of the thing that has, quote unquote, stood the test of time, take the most recent thing that organizations support. Because if you look at the studies that you use to drive the guidelines of the four organizations that are kind of guidelines in the last year, much more recent data, much more sensitive to disease. And I think if they had started there, and if they're true to purpose, they might have gotten to at least a somewhat different result. They certainly would have had a broader lens through which to look at the issue. Tony, that's, my, that's the data geek in me. I, I have several answers, but that's, you know, if you start with bad numbers, you can't get it right. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week's topic is a bit up in the air, but all our options are superb. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing Nash.